Hi, this is Nathan. My passion is to provide Christ-centered Bible teaching and resources that glorifies God and will encourage and equip you to grow spiritually and live a Christ-centered life. If you would like more resources to help you understand the Word of God and cultivate a passionate love for Jesus that turns the world upside down, please visit deeperchristian.com. Now, grab your Bible as we dive into this message from God's Word. Well, John chapter 6, we're kind of starting a new series on Thursdays looking at the I am statements of Jesus, and uh, it was brought to my attention last week that I think I miscommunicated (laughs) the seven I am statements, so I figured I better just review, just for clarity's sake, and list the seven I am statements again, just so we're on the same page, so if I miscommunicated, I do apologize, Uh, but again, there's a whole bunch of I am statements that Jesus makes, specifically even just in the book of John, but there are seven of them that, as we talked about last week, that have this grammatical term that we call the predicate nominative. Again, don't get lost. But the predicate nominative is when you have that word after like an I am statement that gives clarity to what the I am is. In other words, I am a teacher. So the teacher then would be the predicate nominative giving content of what it means for the I am. All that to say, Jesus has seven of these in the book of John where he says I am and then kind of gives a picture or a phrase or a metaphor or a concept to give insight and clarity to what it means for him to be the I am. And again, just to walk through those really quick, uh, Jesus, the first one that shows up is in John 6, which we're going to look at today, where he says, I am the bread of life. So I am the bread. In John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, he says that I am the door or the gate of the sheep. Uh, Later in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in John 15, he says, I am the true vine. And again, we're going to be walking through these over the next several weeks. Uh, And one other thing, just as a reminder, is it's fascinating. This is a beautiful meditation in my mind. The I am statements are all in the present tense. In other words, we're not talking about who God used to be. We're not saying, well, yeah, God used to have this kind of a character. Uh, this, is, this is how he used to behave. What we're saying is, this is who he is right this very moment. And you realize as we begin to walk through these I am statements of Jesus, the profundity of this is, it's not that, like for today, it's not just that he was bred once upon a time, 2,000 years ago, and he has ceased to be bred. That he is bred today. It's not that he used to be light and he's growing dim over the ages. See, he is still brilliant light, bright light. Uh, It's not that he was life at one point and it's become deadened. He is still the fullness of life. And I think it's just a neat thought as we live our life that Jesus in my life is to be present tense. That he's not some abstract concept that I'm adding into my life. That he wants to be the fullness of my life in the present moment And it's not some abstract, wouldn't it be great if he was? It's, this is who he is, and this is what he wants to do in my life. I think that's just beautiful. Well, what I want to do is, in John 15, or sorry, John 15, in John 6, Jesus begins these I am statements by saying, I am the bread. 
Now, I shouldn't even say this because it's probably going to discourage a few of you. Uh, but we're just going to take one section of this, this this week, and we're going to keep looking at the bread next week. It was it was too big of a concept to fit into to the morning. So uh, this isn't going to be a forever series. Don't worry. Um, but we at least had to expand this to two weeks. So it's not going to be like Ephesians, if that's the concern. Just trying to get some clarity. Uh, we are going to get through this within a year. So, <laughs> uh, but John chapter 6. <clears throat> it's, it's fascinating as you walk through John chapter 6. Uh, there is a lot happening in John chapter 6. Uh, for example, at the very beginning of John chapter 6, uh, you, you have the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus is teaching all these people from the northern side of the Sea of Galilee show up. These good Jews are listening. They're, they're hungry for the truth that Jesus is communicating. And as he's communicating, he recognizes, well, at some point they're going to have to go home. And hey, it's probably going to be a long journey. And so we should probably give them some food. And so he goes up to Philip and says, hey, Philip, hey, why don't you go find some bread that all these people can eat? And of course, Philip is thinking in the physical, right? He, he's thinking in terms of like, I, I don't, first of all, first of all, I, I, we don't have that much bread. Second of all, we don't even have that much money. We're in the ministry, Jesus. We don't have a lot of money. So even if we had the money, which we don't, where are we going to go buy that much bread? Right? They didn't have supermarkets. And logically think this through, even if they did have supermarkets, the supermarket probably wouldn't have that much bread. Right? If I looked at you and says, all right, uh, this afternoon we need to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. Right? So we're talking probably 15,000, 20,000 people. Right? So go, go over to King Supers or Safeway and, and grab some bread. Do you think they actually have enough supplies to feed 15, 20,000 people? Probably not. Now we're talking ancient culture, right? Where in ancient culture, to have bread, you had to plant, right? You had to care for it. You had to harvest it. Then you had to grind it. Then you had to bake it, right? So we're talking a process. And Philip's saying, Jesus, uh, we don't have it. So just send them home, and if they faint, they'll bring sack lunches next time, right? Like, they'll, they'll, they'll get used to this. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're going to feed them. And, of course, I, I, I love this. Andrew shows up, and I, I just, I'm, a, I'm a very visual person, but Andrew hears this whole thing, and he sees this little kid, and he brought his Happy Meal. You know, he brought his little sack lunch. And of course, we're like, whoa, five loaves of bread and two fish. That's a great meal. Yeah, this is a kid's meal. This is a happy meal, right? We're talking probably little tiny biscuits and probably some little sardine kind of things, right? We're, we're not talking, you know, salmon. Does that make sense? We're, we're talking probably really, why? Because a mother sent her son with a little sack lunch. And she's not thinking, well, he is a growing boy. I'm going to give him 50 pounds of fish and, you know, 12 loaves of massa bread, right? He's not... That's not how little kids eat. How do little kids eat? They eat one chicken nugget. <laughs> and maybe a french fry, right? So, so she puts in two chicken nuggets and five french fries. Okay, th that's the idea. And so Andrew sees this little kid with a little sack lunch and basically shoves him in front of Jesus and says, we can take his meal, <laughs> but, but what good is that to feed so many people? And again, Scripture doesn't tell us this, but it seems like the boy willingly offered his lunch. 
And I, I imagine that Jesus probably got down on one knee and was just like, can I have your lunch? I'll just watch what I'm going to do with this. Because you realize this would have been pretty epic for the, son, for the little boy, right? He runs home to mom and goes like, you'll never believe what just happened to your lunch. <laughs> it like, we actually have more at the end than we had at the beginning, right? So he, he, he goes through this whole process and feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. In the end, they collect all these baskets full of food. And again, I think it's profound that the ending actually had more than the, the beginning, which is just a beautiful thought. At this point, at the very end, of that little section, uh, verses 14 and 15, uh, here's all these people, they see this phenomenal sign, and they look at Jesus, and it says in verse 15, that knowing, uh, oh, sorry, uh, verse 14, uh, they looked at each other and they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15 says, therefore, knowing that they would come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus departed again to a mountain by himself alone. And Jesus takes the disciples, puts them in a boat, and says, hey, get, get off into the middle of the ocean, uh, the ocean. Get into the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus goes up onto the mountain. And isn't it interesting that knowing that a storm is coming, Jesus thought the safest place for the disciples was in a little boat in the middle of a storm on the Sea of Galilee than being surrounded by a whole bunch of people who have a desire, this twisted desire to make Jesus a king. Isn't that interesting? Uh, in the middle of the night, Jesus walks on the water. And uh, again, he says, do not be afraid to them. Uh, Matthew's account tells us this is when Peter walks on the water as well. Uh, but as soon as Jesus gets in the boat, immediately the boat was on the land near the city of Capernaum. Now they get to the city of Capernaum and in verse 22. Uh, all these people show up and they go, how, how did you get here? Because you, you didn't go with the disciples and suddenly you're here. And so there's a little bit of discussion. And at the kind of the middle of the section around verse 26, they're basically saying, hey, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus makes the comment in verse 26 that, hey, you're actually not seeking me. You're seeking a sign. Uh, you're, you're looking for something. And of course, they're like, yes, as a matter of fact, uh, we want more bread. Hey, give us free food. I mean, come on, Jesus, we always have to, you know, plant it and we have to take care of it and then we have to harvest it and then we have to grind it, then we have to make it. If you are our king, you could just give us bread every day. And I'll just, let's just circumvent this whole thing. Let's just make this easy. And Jesus says, you're looking in the wrong place because I am the bread. Hey, you're seeking the physical, but let me tell you, that's not why I've come. That I am the bread that came down from heaven. And look at verse 35. It's kind of the capstone verse in this whole section. But it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, it's interesting that from now until the very end of the chapter, Jesus begins to argue with the disciples concerning Moses and the man in the wilderness. And they said, well, hey, why don't you show us a sign? Hey, Moses, I mean, come on, Moses, the great prophet, gave us bread down from heaven. So come on, Jesus, give us some more bread. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm not doing that. Now, the only way you could properly understand what Jesus is doing in the passage when he says, I am the bread, is to go back and look at the original manna from bread from heaven stuff. So if you'll flip back, again, we'll come back to John 6 here, but flip back to Exodus uh, chapter 16. <clears throat> in uh, Exodus 16, they just left Egypt. 
Uh, they've, they've crossed the Red Sea. They're now entering into the desert. At the end of chapter 15, uh, God heals the bitter waters and makes them sweet, which is phenomenal. Uh, he says, uh, it says down in Exodus 16, verse 1, Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of Israel, the children of Israel, came to the wilderness of Zin. Um, by the way, if you come with me to Israel in April, we are going to the wilderness of Zin. So if you could, you could, we could be wandering right there if you want to come with me. Uh, but they, they came to the wilderness of Zin. Now, they start looking around, and they realize they have a problem. Uh, they, they just left Egypt. Scholars tell us there's probably two to three million Israelites, plus all the herds and all the flocks and all that kind of stuff. So you realize there's a lot of people, and, uh, and we, know, we know how believers, godly people eat. <laughs> Potlucks were invented, right, by believers. <laughs> so could you imagine, you have two to three million people who have just left Egypt, who've been slaves, now they've been walking, now they're hungry, and, and they look at Moses and they say, Moses, we have a problem. Give us some food. And they start to complain, and Moses goes to God and says, God, these are your people, what are you going to do? Look at, verse, look at verse 4. In Exodus 16, 4, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Indeed, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain amount every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Isn't it interesting that God was going to provide provision, but in the midst of the provision, the provision was a test to see if you're going to believe in what God said and whether you're going to live according to the law. So it's just something to hold in the back of your mind that when we're talking the bread from heaven, the bread from heaven, he heaven is not just merely fulfillment. It's not just merely the provision of bread. The midst of the bread from heaven is a test of how you're going to live, which should make sense to you, right? Uh, every morning you go out and you, you have this stuff on the ground and Seems like it was, I mean, uh, Numbers tells us a little bit of detail about it, but we, we don't know a lot. It looks like a wafery kind of a thing. It seems like you could pick it up like grain. You can make it into a whole bunch of different kind of textures. Apparently, you can have, you know, manna mush and manna bread and you know, manna pancakes and <laughs> manna oatmeal kind of stuff. I mean, it's just like, it seems like you can cook it, you can bake it, you can, you know, fry it. You, I mean, there's a lot of things apparently you could do with a manna. Sounds interesting. Right? It says in the, in the heat of the day, the thing would melt, which is mind-boggling. It's like, what, what is this stuff, right? But, but God says, hey, what we're going to do is you're going to go out and every day gather this thing, and then, hey, you're going to use it, but you can't, you can't keep any for the next day. You have to trust that I'm going to keep providing. Except on the Sabbath day, and you take twice as much. Right? That, that whole scene. You realize that this becomes a test of your dependence. This becomes a test of your trust in the provision of your God. I, am I going to trust that the man is going to be there the next day? Am I going to trust that on the Sabbath day, God's actually going to supply and it's not going to get moldy and it's going to su survive for two days? So it's interesting that this thing becomes a test. Now, again, in the midst of all the murmuring that happens, God says, all right, I'll, I'll provide it. Now, look at over at verse 12. In verse 12, it says that the, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I've heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. In other words, I've heard the complaining. And God says, speak to them, saying, in the evening you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Get this. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. 
But there's this beautiful connection between this idea of God providing the bread and God saying, hey, when I provide the bread, you will know that I am God. Hey, there's not going to be a doubt in your mind that this should be evidence and this should grow your faith and you should go, whoa, yes, he is God. Now, in verse 13 of Exodus 16, it says, so in the evening, the quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning, a layer of dew was surrounding the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, on the surface of the wilderness, there lay a small flaky thing, as fine as the frost on the ground. When the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, manna, which means, what is it? Isn't that hilarious? For they did not know what it was. So get this idea. Manna, the word, was not the name of the substance. Manna was the question of what is it. And isn't it interesting that that phrase, manna, is what carried itself along? So here they are. They come out the first day, and they're like, ah, oh, bread. Bread's coming down from heaven. Here we go. Woo, this is going to be exciting. And they're like, it's like frost on the ground. What do we do with this? Gather it? What is it? And someone goes, that's a great name. <laughs> yeah, let's use that name. Let's just call this stuff manna. Yeah, what is it? So every day, we're going to get up and go, what's for breakfast? What is it? <laughs> hey, what's for lunch? What is it? What's for dinner? What is it? Right? And manna became the name of breakfast, lunch, and dinner, which I think is kind of funny. Isn't it interesting, though, that it says at the end of verse 15, they called it manna because they did not know what it was. But Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now hold that for one second. I'm going to come back to it. Uh, it's interesting that Psalm 78 gives a little bit of an indication, uh, some insight into this whole story. Now it's a bizarre passage uh, I don't know whether it's to be taken literally or whether it's more figuratively, uh, but, but listen to what Psalm 78 says. Uh, in fact, I'll just turn there really quick so I can read the bigger <coughs> context. Uh, Psalm 78, uh, starting with verse 17, <coughs> talking about the wilderness scene, uh, the psalmist is recounting the history of the Israelites. Uh, verse 17, it says that they sinned yet more again against him, by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. They tested God in their hearts by demanding the food that they craved. They spoke against God by saying, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck a rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel, because they did not believe in God, nor trust in his deliverance. Yet he had commanded the skies above, get this, verse 23, yet he had commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Isn't that an interesting thought? It goes on and says that they ate the food of mighty angels. He sent them bread in abundance. So, Again, whether it's to be literal or whether it's more figurative, the psalmist is saying, do you realize, here they are, they provoke God, God's getting angry. Why? Because they didn't actually trust in God's provision or his deliverance. 
And God says, all right, I'm going to give you the water from the rock. I'm going to provide manna in the wilderness. And that God literally took the bread of heaven, the grain of heaven, and gave it to humanity. The food of angels became the food of men. And again, I don't really want to do all that. I just think that's fascinating. Now, as you come back into this whole idea of Exodus uh, and this whole giving of the manna thing, you realize manna throughout Scripture became a symbol of several key reminders. One, again, it had this idea of dependency. Uh, it had this idea of trust. That every single day I, I had to go and I had to trust that God was going to supply the bread for that day. That, that every day I had to say, okay, God, I, I, I need to eat. So today I, I'm trusting that there's still going to be manna on the ground, right? Isn't it interesting that there were some, as they entered into the land of Israel, the promised land, who'd only ever eaten manna? Because all those who had been born in the wilderness, the only thing they would have ever eaten for their whole life was some quail and what is it? <laughs> this grain of heaven angel food kind of stuff, right? Probably tastes like angel food cake, right? So it's just, it's just what is it stuff? So you can imagine the promised land, the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey is even more enticing for those who have only eaten the manna. Fun side thought. But, but you realize there's, there's this beautiful picture in this idea of dependency. That I can't gather extra. Because the moment I gather extra, it grew moldy. It had worms. That, that every single day I had to trust in the provision of the Lord to give exactly what I needed. Which brings up a second reminder, which means I have to gather it daily. That this is, I can't hoard it. That it is always sufficient. It's just enough for the day. And so I go out and I gather, and I, I get, get my Omar of, of the Omar of, of uh, the manna, and I go and I can make my manna cakes and manna bread and manna, you know, meatloaf and manna, oatmeal and manna, whatever that I was making for that day, right? And, and as, as I made the manna, you realize I had to gather that every single day, except on the, the day before the Sabbath, which I would collect twice as much. And I was seeing God's overwhelming provision that every single day, I, it, was, it was always there, but one day a week, it never showed up. Do you realize that that is proving God's faithfulness? If it showed up every single day, we just go, yeah, it's just normal. But recognizing that there was one day a week where God says, I'm not giving it to you. There's only one day a week when it didn't grow moldy. See, it was just this overwhelming rehearsal that I can trust God. That, hey, I can depend upon him. That he is going to supply with what I need. That he's going to take care of, care of my needs. He's going to satisfy that, that hunger pain in, in my stomach that just growls and just goes, oh, I need food. That he, he's, going to be, he's going to satisfy that. Every single day I had to go and I had to gather this thing. It's interesting, there's also this neat reminder that it truly is sufficient. That, that I didn't have to go and I didn't have to plant and I didn't have to caretake and I didn't have to harvest and then I didn't have to grind and then I have to make that God supplied what I needed. All I had to do was pick it up and then I could, I could cook with it. That, that, but it was sufficient. You realize it says uh, in verse 18 uh, that he had gathered much, had nothing left over, and he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to what he could eat. That it was always sufficient. 
that somehow, oops, I didn't take as much as I needed today. That's okay. For whatever reason, I never lacked. If I took a little extra that day, that's fine. You'll use it up. Isn't it interesting that it was, it was always sufficient, but it was sufficient for the day. And there's this other idea that it was always supernatural. You realize that the picture of manna is that it's a supernatural provision. That this is not a natural thing. I've never once walked outside, looked at the frost on the ground and said, let's make bread. <laughs> right? Because, hey, that, that's not, it's just frost. But what they were walking through in the wilderness, and you realize there was not frost. It says a desert. <laughs> I don't think you're going to get frost at 100 degrees. Right? So you go out in the morning, you gather it, and as the sun came up and it started to get hot, the thing would melt, and you're like, there it goes until tomorrow. Right? But it was a supernatural provision, which is kind of a neat idea. Now, go back to this idea of verse 15 of Exodus 16. It says, when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, manna, what is it? For they did not know what it was. But Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Isn't it interesting that it's like Moses gives clarity to what it was. I don't know how to phrase this well, but here are the Israelites, they look at this stuff on the ground, their name for it was, what is it? Manna. Moses says, let me tell you what it is. It's bread from heaven. It's the bread that God has given you to eat. But what's the name that stuck? Not heavenly bread, which seems like actually what it should have been called. But rather, what is it? And isn't it interesting, every time I use the word manna in relationship, every morning I wake up, I go out and I go, ah, manna. Do you realize it, it's, I don't know how to say this well, it's almost like, I'm casting doubt. There's this idea of, I don't know. I, it's just, what is it? What is it? What is it? And it's this rehearsal of the what is it kind of stuff. It's interesting to me that when you turn to John chapter 6, that Jesus over and over and over again talks about the fact that he's the bread from heaven, but the only time he uses the word manna is in relationship to the fact of what they did and the fact that they died eating it. I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh, but let me walk you through these really quick of uh, John 6. In John 6, 32, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, we do know that, hey, God gave bread from heaven. It's just stuff, right? Heavenly bread, angel food cake, right? It's just this wonderful stuff. And it should have been called heavenly bread. They said, ah, what is it? But this, we're talking physical, right? You would eat it every single day, but eventually all those people died. Jesus says, do you realize that I am the greater fulfillment of that? That I am the bread that came down from heaven, but in this case, we're not talking physical now, we're talking spiritual. When you partake of me, you'll never hunger again. You don't die. That this bread, Jesus says, only brings life. That bread, it sustains you, but it still led to your death. Because at some point you had to die. So it's sustained for a moment. I sustain for eternity. Uh, in verse 33, he says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Verse 38, I came down from heaven. Verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Look at verse 49, though. He says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. Isn't that interesting? And again, I, I, don't, I don't fully even know what to do with all this. I was just pondering it fresh last night going, I'm like, God, I need insight. <laughs> Why is it? They call it, what is it? And every time Jesus uses that word in John 6, it's, when you say, what is it? It leads to your physical death. <clears throat> but I am not the, what is it? He's not the manna. Now, a manna is a picture of him. Hey, I get that. But he's not the manna. He is the bread that came down from heaven. Isn't that interesting? And again, I still don't know how to fully comprehend all this. Uh, I just think it's beautiful. Uh, in verse 50, uh, he says, This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Verse 58, This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate manna and died, but he who eats this bread will live forever. So Jesus is saying, okay, what you did back there in the Old Testament, hey, and hey, God gave this heavenly bread. Hey, that's great. You looked at it, called it manna. And hey, it sustained you. That's, that's true. Hey, it was, it was a provision. Praise the Lord. And hey, but it led to death. It was momentary provision for a season. Jesus says, I'm the, I'm that which it points to. I, I'm the fulfillment of that thing. Because I am the bread which comes down from heaven, and if you partake of me, woo, you'll have life. Isn't it interesting that we as a culture are constantly looking for that which will satisfy? And interestingly, we are always looking in the wrong place. Again, if I can maybe read into this a little bit, it seems like we're looking for manna. We're looking for something, and we're going, well, what is it? I don't know what I'm even looking for, but I'm looking for something. And Jesus is standing in the middle saying, I'm it. Hey, would you just partake? Because I am that which satisfies. Hey, I, I am that, you realize that whole little list? You are to be dependent and trusting in Jesus. The manna reminders, you realize that's all about Jesus. That the man is a picture of him. That how often should I gather Jesus in my life? Daily. That this isn't like, well, I go to church on Sunday and that's enough for the week. No, you're going to die. Do that physically. Good luck. Right? All right. We're going to eat one big meal on Sundays. And then whoosh, for the rest of the week, I'm going to do my own thing. You're not going to make it. Why? Because you were not made to eat one meal a week. You were made to partake multiple times a day. You realize that you have to eat. You have to take nourishment in daily. That's true spiritually. That spiritually, you can't just, well, I go to church on Sundays and prayer meetings on Wednesday nights. It's, it's my midweek refueling session. You're going you're gonna to suffer and die, folks. Because this is not, you know, did, did, did you get filled up? And then are you going to get filled up midweek? This is, why wouldn't you keep your tank full every single day? Because try it physically. Again, physically, it's becoming a picture of what is to happen spiritually. Does that make sense? It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a picture. That, that how, am I, how am I to trust and depend on Jesus? Well, the same way that they had to trust and depend that God was going to provide the manna. That I have to realize that Jesus is sufficient to meet my needs. 
2 Peter 1.3 says he's all things that I need for life and for godliness. That this is a supernatural reality. That this is not, what, what can I do for him? This is, wow, could I get so tight with him that I'm starting to live by the indwelling life of Christ, which is a supernatural life, and it's not me mimicking the life of Jesus. This is me actually having the life of Jesus down in the depths of who I am. That he is that which the man appointed to but he's not the manna. He's the bread from heaven. And again, I think it's so interesting that in our culture, our culture, we're looking for, we're looking for the survival stuff. We're looking for the satisfaction. We're looking for the provision in every place but the place that actually satisfies and provides. Right, when you go back to look at Exodus 16, verse 3, it says, Now the children of Israel said to, <clears throat> said to them, would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're like, it would have been better to have been slaves in Egypt. Why? At least we had pots of meat next to us. Hey, we, we had bread. We could stuff our faces full of bread whenever we wanted to. And Moses, you're leading us out of the wilderness to kill us by hunger. What is that? It's a complaint. And they're actually looking back to a slave, a slave life saying, that's more desirable. That rather than trusting in God's provision and what God is doing, they're turning their back to God saying, I, I want, I'd rather, have, I'd rather have a slave life. Because at least I know I get bread. Uh, if you turn to uh, Numbers 4, you don't, or sorry, Numbers 11, you don't have to turn there. But in Numbers 11, uh, this is some years later, it says that the children of Israel wept again. They're weeping. Think about this. And they said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish, which we ate in Egypt for free. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now, oh, our life is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Isn't that interesting? That's just, they gotten so accustomed to this daily provision thing that even after they've been having it, they're like, we still want Egypt. At least there were some spices in Egypt. At least there was like garlic in Egypt. At least there was a leek. I don't even know what a leek is, but it sounds nasty. There's leeks. Oh, there's onions. Oh. Do, do you realize that what they were hungering for is not what God was providing. They were hungering for a life of slavery. Do you realize we do that today? That we in the church, we have the provision of God. We have all that we need for life and for God godliness. We look at the phenomenal life that we have in Jesus, and what do we say? Ah, what is it? Yeah, I'm going through the duties. I'm going through the motions. I'm checking it off my list. I'm getting my weekly refueling time. Woo! But my life is dead. Oh. You remember that days of sin? Oh, yeah. You remember that fun and the pleasure and the joy? There were spices and leeks. Oh, leeks of sin. <laughs> Garlic sin is so amazing. And isn't it interesting that we in the church have this propensity like the Israelites in the wilderness not to be satisfied with that which has been provided. We are desiring that which he has saved us from. 
And Jesus stands up and says, do you realize I am all that you need? I am the bread from heaven. That when you look at me, you don't have to say, what is it? I'm telling you what it is. This is the bread from heaven. And when you eat the bread, it will give you life. It's interesting that it's not one of the I am statements, but in John chapter 4, Jesus shows up uh, in Samaria to this well. And it's midday, and it's hot. And as he's sitting there, the disciples go into town to get some food, and this woman shows up. And of course, we know she has a bad backstory, and, and it makes sense that she's coming in the middle of the day when it's hot, because likely she's been ostracized from the community, and she doesn't gather water with the women in the morning when it's cool. She has to do it later on, where there's not as much gossip going around and all this kind of stuff. And so she, she shows up, and here's this man. And they start having this conversation, and Jesus says, hey, can I have a little water? And, you know, they had this exchange. And Jesus makes this statement in a John 4.10. He says, he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus doesn't say, I am the living water, but that is what he's saying. Does that make sense? It's not one of the I am statements. But Jesus is saying, do you recognize that the one who's asking you for a drink is actually the living water itself? He says a few verses later, verse 13 and 14, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I shall give him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. Jesus says, do you recognize that and again, at least in the context of this woman, that, hey, you are looking around for something that is satisfying your thirst. Hey, you, you've, had, you've had all these husbands. Hey, you're looking for something to satisfy. Nothing satisfying, is it? But do you recognize, Jesus says, that I am that which satisfies. If you would come to me and you're thirsty, oh, drink of me. Because by drinking of me, you will never thirst again. In fact, I love this. <clears throat> A wellspring of water is going to be within your life. That you're not just going to be satisfied, you're going to be overflowing with this water. You're going to be a, a reservoir. You're going to be a fountain. You're going to be this geyser of water that just flows forth. So much so that the people around you can taste the water. Why is it that we turn to everything but Jesus? Why is it that we're looking for satisfaction in everything but Jesus? Why, why do we look to entertainment to find rest for our souls when Jesus is the rest for our souls? Why do we look at sports for our joy when Jesus is the fullness of joy? Why is it that we try to turn to alcohol for a sense of peace when he is the prince of peace? Why is it that... See, this... Do you know how... Ah. Jesus, I'm the bread! Eat! I want to close with this. Uh, if you have your Bibles, Jeremiah... Chapter 2, a phenomenal passage. <clears throat> In Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, God is speaking through the mouth of Jeremiah. And uh, God makes a statement in verse 13, uh, Jeremiah 2.13. He says, For my people, says the Lord, have committed two evils. So God is looking at the landscape in Jeremiah's day and says, all right, Jeremiah, my people 
the people of whom I love, they have committed two evils. What does he say? Look, look at verse 13, chapter 2. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. You realize that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is the living water. He says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That there is this fountain that is ever flowing with water of all that you ever need. And what have they said? They said, no, thank you for the fountain. I'm going to forsake that. I'm going to turn my back on it. I'm going to do something else. So, my people, says God, the ones of whom I love, have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. But number two, look at this. They hewned out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that could hold no water. Now, if you, if you know Israel, and again, if you come with me, I can show you a cistern. But, uh, which, seen in Israeli cistern is quite amazing. It is it's profound. And the reason it's profound is you realize that in Israel, one of the greatest needs, even to this day, is water. The most precious possession to an Israeli is water, which is why water is so expensive in Israel. Think about this. God says, I have all that you need. I'm a fountain of living waters. You ever, if you're ever thirsty, it, it's always flowing. Just stick your cup underneath. It's all that you need. But what have you done? You've committed an evil. You've forsaken that. But you've committed another evil. You've turned to this rock. And when with the sweat of your brow, you started digging a hole in the rock. And you start chiseling out the rock. And you build a cistern. And a lot of the cisterns in Israel, it's interesting, they're, they're big enough you can walk in. I mean, they, they hold thousands of gallons of water. And you, and you literally walk into them, and it's interesting, there's these massive rooms that were chiseled by hand. And so here they are, they're, they're chipping away, they're chipping away. And why, why, do they, why are they doing that? It's so they can hold some water. So that when it rains, they can funnel some water into, for, into the cistern so that their community during drought has some water. That when it doesn't rain, it has some water. God says, you know what you're doing? You have this limitless supply of water. And you've rejected that and says, I think I can do this myself. In my own effort, in my own ability, by the own sweat of my brow. So you, you, know, you, you kind of pull up your shirt sleeves and you start chipping away at this stone. Do you know how hard it is to chip away at stone? And here you are, you're chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. Finally, you have this massive room. And the way you do, you begin to plaster it with lime so, so that it holds the water in. And you get all this work done. Oh, look at this amazing thing that I did. Now I've got to put some water in it. And you start dumping water in it. And guess what you find? Oh, no. There's a crack in it. And I love teaching this principle in the middle of a cistern. Because if you're in the middle of a cistern, you're not looking at anything. See this crack? It's not going to hold water. And you realize all the labor and all the effort and all the, just the, the toil by the sweat of your brow into building this sustaining system that is not producing water, it's merely to hold water. And yet that which is built to hold water has a crack in it and it is allowing water to seep out of it. So it doesn't actually do any good. So you're desperate for water. So what do you do? You sweat out a lot of water trying to build a place to hold water and when you finish building the place of water, it doesn't hold any water. God says that's evil. That you in your own self-effort think that you can be self-sufficient and you can somehow reserve and preserve and produce your own water 
He goes, that's, that's fruitless. It's, it's going to kill you. Why? Because it's not going to hold anything. And here I am, a fountain of limitless water, always available for all that you need, and you've rejected it. That's our culture. That's our Christian culture. God's sitting there going, hey, I'm all that you need for life and for godliness. Why would you look elsewhere when I'm here? Why would you go looking for bread when I am the bread? Why would you go looking for something to satisfy your thirst when I am the water, the living water? And when you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. Why would you turn to some moldy old bread when I, I'm, the, I'm the fresh baked out of the oven with butter pouring down the sides? Amazing bread. And even if you're gluten-free, you can eat this stuff because it's amazing. That's what Jesus is. He is the heavenly bread that has been given for life. And what have we done? We've said, eh. God, can I have my slavery stuff back? Can, can I have the leeks and the onions of Egypt? God, can I, thank you for the manna. I don't even know what this thing is, but I, I'm rejecting that and I would rather go back to be a slave in the land of Egypt with that which doesn't even satisfy God says, hey, my people have committed two evils. And that keeps pressing my heart because the reality is, is Jesus all that I need? Not, not in word, in how I live. Do, do I turn to something other than Jesus to satisfy? Am I, am I looking for anything outside of Jesus to somehow fill a void? Am I looking for some sort of pleasure outside of him? Am I somehow looking for some sort of fulfillment outside of him? Am I somehow turning to anything besides him? Because the reality is, if he is all that we need for life and godliness, why would we have to look anywhere else? He is a fountain of living water. He is the bread of heaven. And again, Jesus in John 6, 35 says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So here's the question. Where are you looking for bread? Let's pray. <clears throat> oh Lord, Lord, I confess that yeah, I say that I want you and that you are everything and you are good. Lord, I confess that times there's this inner desire that says, oh, the leeks and the onions and the garlic of Egypt. That which used to have a pull on my life, oh, I remember the satisfaction. When in reality, Lord, it's nothing but deadness. It never satisfies. It is, it's worse than moldy bread. It is a cistern that does not hold water. And Lord, you have offered yourself as the bread of heaven. That you have offered yourself as the living water. And when we partake of you, we will never hunger and we will never thirst. Lord, what would it look like if, if I would lean upon you in dependency and trust? What if you became my daily nourishment? That this wasn't I tipped my hat to you one day a week down at the church but somehow every moment of every single day, I just all oh, lived in the reality. I just splashed 
in this fountain of living water that I just gorged myself at the table of the living bread? What would it look like to take you in daily? What would it look like to realize that you are sufficient for every need of my life? What would it look like, Lord, if you were wanting to do an overwhelming supernatural thing in my life through the indwelling life of your spirit within me? That this is not about what I can do and what I can produce and the cisterns that I can hew out of rock. This is about you, the fountain of living water. Lord, don't let me be satisfied with anything outside of you. Lord, I pray that anything outside of you would taste like moldy bread. And it's not that, it's not that the world is bad. I understand that. You've blessed it and called it good. Hey, I praise the Lord. And it's not that I can't enjoy things. I, I get that, Jesus. But Lord, I don't want anything to have first place. That Lord, even if I'm watching a movie, that somehow the movie isn't as satisfying as you. Well, Lord, if I'm watching a sports game, I, I don't want that sports game to be as satisfying as you. And Lord, I do pray that if any of these things have holds and grips in our life, that somehow you would just make it so just, eh, just tastes like dirt compared to the what we have with you. Lord, would you be our bread from heaven? Would you be that which satisfy? Will you be our fountain of living waters? Not in a word, but in how we think and how we talk and how we live. Thank you that you are in this present tense the bread of life. And Lord, we do want to partake of you. We love you, Jesus. Let's give you the praise and the glory in your precious name.